All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to continue our survey of the pioneering social-slash-community websites by sitting down with David Bonet, who, along with John Reznor, founded GeoCities. David recounts for us how a lifelong passion for communications technology inspired the idea of GeoCities, how and why that site grew to become one of the five most popular web destinations in the world by the late 90s, as well as the company's blockbuster sale to Yahoo!, we also marvel at how GeoCities lives on thanks to the passion and affection of the GeoCities community. Towards the end, we also talk a bit about his philanthropy, which, granted, a lot of the people we talk to are engaged in philanthropic efforts, but David is next level. Seriously, the guy is prolific, to say the least. So please enjoy this conversation with the fascinating David Bonet. David Bonnet, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Happy to be here, Brian. Thank you. Uh, is it true? You, you grew up in Chicago, right? I did, a suburb, western suburb uh, called Hinsdale. Were you, uh, were you a, a tech kid? Were you into computers and things like that? I was uh, uh, always interested in mechanical things. I had a real fascination with, right from the very beginning, Brian, uh, 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 with telephones. I, I just thought telephones were the were the coolest thing mm-hmm. and uh it was it was the tech it was the technology of the telephone itself but it was also the the uh the network and, and the system and i remember uh i had a number that that uh would ring the telephone back and i thought that's just like the coolest thing ever uh and i would dial that and you'd hang up and the phone would ring back and uh i would Growing up, I would go visit the Museum of Science and Industry in downtown Chicago, and the Bell Telephone System, Illinois Bell, had a, just a fa- fantastic exhibit at the uh, Museum of Science and Industry. So it was a very early, very early fascination with telephones. And then uh, I was a ham radio operator, mm. so I, I learned Morse code, 
and started with my novice ham radio license, then then graduated up to my general uh, ham radio license. I built uh, Heath Kits, uh, Heath Kit ham radios, mm-hmm. and I did that in uh, junior high and high school. So uh, maybe a communications geek, we could say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go to um, University of Southern California, what what's the degree that you're pursuing? I was uh, interested. I was interested in pursuing a computer science degree, and USC had an early computer science program, and I was also uh, interested in pursuing a, a business background. And I I get to USC and I start to take uh, computer science courses, and at that point, you had to get a math degree. Uh, to get a computer science degree uh, because it was mostly about the theory of hardware and, the, and, and computer theory versus what I was really interested in were with the application side, uh, uh, in the business applications or, or consumer applications. So I did take a number of programming courses and uh, did a lot of mainframe work with uh, punch cards uh, and that ended up uh, having a kind of a minor in computer science and a degree in business. You, um, you, right, you got the, the MBA from, from uh, University of Michigan, and you start off uh, with Arthur Anderson, is that right? I started off with Anderson Consulting out of graduate school, uh, which, which uh, actually ended up becoming Accenture, uh, but at, at the time I started, it was a, called Anderson Consulting. It was an arm of Arthur Anderson Company. And I started right out uh, doing uh, application design and programming for uh, business information systems. I would uh, help design general ledger systems, for, help design general ledger systems for the HP 3000. So I was doing a combination of systems analysis, design, coding, just the stuff I, I love to do uh, for I did inventory systems and it was a great time to learn structured program development and actually hands-on coding uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And and that leads to a couple different jobs with, with various software companies in the 80s. A friend of mine had started a software company here in Southern California called Essential Software. It was mainframe system automation products, uh, uh, report distribution, online report viewing. Uh, and I had a variety of jobs at that company. It was a small software company. I managed the development group. Uh, I was... Uh, CFO at some point, and 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 then I uh, was head of head of product marketing and product management, and and that company was Essential Software was acquired by Goal Systems in Columbus, and Goal Systems was was then acquired by Legion Corporation, and I had a series of jobs uh, throughout those acquisitions, but the most important was product manager, which was really instrumental and in, in, in very helpful for my future career. Because it, it, it taught you how to who, to develop products and, and bring them through their life cycle and bring them to market, that sort of thing? Exactly. And, and having had such extensive experience with all facets of the, the products, uh, the, pro- the product manager position, if, if, it's, if it's a good one, is like the best overview of, of what the product is all about because you interface with the development group, you interface with the sales team, you look at what the competition is doing, you're responsible for uh, promoting and pricing the product, uh, uh, developing and determining what features go in new releases. So it was, uh, it was a great way to see the entire you know, life cycle, uh, uh, all the different phases and stages of, of the product from being developed to being sold. <clears throat> 
Now, I had read, this might be too cute a story, but I, I, I had read that you first learned of, of the web um, you know, in a magazine article on a plane, but I also get the sense that maybe before that you, you might have been um, active on you know, early online services and message boards and things like that. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Um, I, I, did, I did read about the web on a PC Magazine article on, on an airplane, but re- I mean, really, going back to my you know ham radio days, it was I was always fascinated about and and, and then my interest in telephones, fascinated with technology that that helps people communicate with each other. And so when PCs came out, that uh, uh, was great. Uh, but then when when Hayes modems came out, when the first 300 baud modem came out, and you could actually connect the the computer to a phone line and, and talk to the outside world. That's when everything, you know, really changed for me. And you would dial up to uh, BBS's proprietary bulletin board systems, and then there was CompuServe and Prodigy, and then there was AOL after that. And that was just that was just fascinating to me. It was it was opened up a whole new world of of finding people, communicating with people of similar interests, no matter where no matter where they were. So is it is it this background as being a communications geek that you see the web and it strikes you, oh, there's something that I can do here. There's something for me here. There's a, there's a business here. Is that is that sort of how the, the gestation started? Well, Brian, it was, it was all those except, you know, I, I had no idea what the business side was going to be. But once I read that article, this was just about the time that this was 1994 and the web was... Uh, being opened up for, for commercial use, I just I just felt like I had to be a part of it. I just felt like it was something that was had so much potential and, and was it was so exciting. And I remember having to install the 32-bit extensions on Windows, and I had an ISDN line installed in my apartment and uh, uh, downloaded Mosaic, and it was just like wow, this is this is this is unbelievable. And it, at the time, I thought this has the potential to be a global online service. I had that, that that structure in my mind of, you know, CompuServe and AOL, and I thought this could be the the, the global version of a uh, of an online service. And I, I I just couldn't sleep. It was it was so exciting and I wanted to be I wanted to be a part of it. So walk me through how this leads to uh, Beverly Hills Internet. I started using the web and I thought this is this is, this has you know just this incredible potential and at some point every business is going to have a website. It's you know I, I I was overwhelmed by by the thought of what it what it could be. And I was living in Beverly Hills and I thought well I'll start a company called Beverly Hills Internet and the 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 first service we offered was website hosting and uh, I learned HTML and uh, uh, with a partner John Resner set up a web hosting service. Uh, for a number of a number of businesses, there were a few banks. There were, were a few local businesses, and we hosted their very first uh, their very first website. And while we were doing that, I was trying to think of what 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 else could we do that was uh, beyond beyond web hosting. And I had a I had an early early fascination with webcams because I when I saw the some of the very first webcams, I thought this is. This, this creates a, a sense of context that you're in a different place, that you're actually seeing something happening somewhere else. And you know, different from TV, it was just just this 
amazing fascination, and, and one of the very, very early webcams, I think there's a Wikipedia page about it, is a, a coffee pot in Cambridge, England. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. engineers had hooked up a very primitive webcam because they didn't want to go to the next floor down or up to see if there was coffee, so they hooked up this webcam. for. And I just thought that's the, the coolest thing ever. And so I really wanted for us to do our own webcams. And so with John... Reznor, who was in the tech side of the business, we bought a couple of SunSpark stations and a couple of camcorders, and we we wired the the camcorder output to the boards inside the. There's no, no such thing as a webcam. Right, right. And we wired it to the boards inside the Sun. And I had a friend who had a, a graphic design business in Hollywood at the corner of Hollywood and Vine, and our office was in Beverly Hills, and so. We put up two webcams, uh, one pointing to a bus bench on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, and the other pointing to the corner of Hollywood and Vine. And these would refresh every, I think, six to eight seconds because there, was there wasn't the bandwidth mm -hmm. or the technology for live streaming. And then just started to kind of blast out you know, that the, the, we have these webcams. And, and at that same time, I was thinking – you know, what, how can we leverage the visibility of this? And I went up to an early Internet uh, uh, trade show where Jerry Yang and David Philo were setting up their booth, and I was setting up my booth. And I was on the way back, and I was thinking, you know, how can we, you know, how can we, how can we leverage this traffic? And I thought, well, let's give away free homepages so that anybody can set up their own free website and that, that idea was, wasn't necessarily unique, but what was unique was the sense of we will, we will have communities of interest where people can set up pages about whatever they like around certain themes, and we would use the locations, we would use real-life real locations as themes. And so we had this webcam in Hollywood, and that, then people could set up fan pages about celebrities, et cetera, and we had this webcam in Beverly Hills so we could set up about you know shopping and high end and we so we would name our communities after real places or thematically related real places like Coliseum for sports and Nashville for country music and Area 51 for uh, science and technology and West Hollywood for lesbian and gay related themes and Wall Street for financial themes and that was that was kind of how the pieces came together it was the webcams, which generated a lot of early traffic, it was uh, giving away the free web pages, but then organizing those into thematic communities of interest. So it wasn't just a hodgepodge; it was there was a coherence to the sites. And and I wrote the HTML for the initial uh, uh, how you set up your web page. And at that point, it was AOL CompuServe and Prodigy. So we set up different. That was really the only way people could get on the web until the ISPs came along and so and, and got popular. And so we had templates for AOL Prodigy and CompuServe users and I had you know, templates for uh, with, with certain you know graphic elements and ways to include pictures. And we set up this context where you actually have a neighbor. You would you would when you signed up for a site at GeoCities you would go through this sequence where you would pick the thematic neighborhood and then you you'd be shown kind of a 2D representation of a street, and you'd kind of pick your address on the street. Mm -hmm. And so your, your web, you had a context for setting up your 
your web page that you were part of a you were part of a neighborhood that had had someone on either side of you and everyone in the neighborhood was interested in similar interests. So that's kind of a you know, that's the story of how it got started. And, and I because I don't think we've mentioned it, um the the name is GeoCities. It becomes GeoCities because you're extending that that geographic metaphor uh, to these to these sites. Um, so, and also to be clear, so there were um, templates, and like it, it wasn't just hard coding. If I if I homesteaded a GeoCities site, I didn't have to necessarily hard code the whole thing myself. No, it was there was there was templates where you would you would it it, it would it was an interface through the online services and. You could put in, you know, text. You could put in other HTML links. You could include graphics, and you could include photos. And at one point, along the way, we would develop our own uh, HTML editors and and website builders. And we acquired uh, in a couple of uh, uh, early website uh, create creation tools. But it started with it started with templates. And and uh, for the for the context of the time, when does it? shift into being GeoCities? Is this around 96-ish or so? No, the company started in 94, and I think GeoCities was um, really in 95. Okay. You know, some, some point in 95. And how, what was the, what was the traction like? What, how soon was there significant uptake, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're seeing thousands and then tens of thousands of people starting I sent an email probably to Maybe I'm going to say 16, 18 people uh, uh, that that I knew, and I said, "Gee, I've launched this service, and you can set up your own free web page." And it just it just took off from there. And I had a uh, I had a desktop PC, and I had an email client. And every time someone would sign up for a new GeoCity site, I'd get an email, and it would it would ring like there'd be a ding. And so I would sit at my desk and. You know, I'd be meeting with somebody or not, and there would be a, be a ding, and then, you know, I'd see who that was, and then the ding started becoming faster and faster, and, and within a matter of months, it was, you know, in, in the thousands, and then months after that, it was in the tens of thousands, and at one point, it was, I don't know, eight per second, I think, uh, uh, 24 hours a day that people were setting up these sites. Mm-hmm. What about... um? What about fundraising? Because I I believe that you had self-funded the start of the company, but at, at what point do you have to uh, go talk to VCs and, and and start to start to really get big? That's right, Brian. I bo- I bootstrapped uh, the company myself and rented office and uh, bought servers uh, and did not pay myself, nor you know did John take any kind of salary. And it was the two of us for for quite a long time, and I think. Navy brought on one, one or two employees, and and I would, I reached out to dozens of VCs and funders, and people just weren't getting it. I mean, the internet was still so new, uh, the business models were were completely undeveloped. There was, I mean, I remember the very first banner ad was a was a Volvo, and it was like, wow, there's advertising on the internet. Mm-hmm. Who knew? Uh, so, the internet for a long time went on without. You know, any sense of what the business models would be, there was there was some hope and expectation that e-commerce would someday take off, um, and that that advertising might someday be you know significant. But nobody had any sense. But I was, you know, put projections together, and I was confident that with a, a large enough audience, 
that you know we would be able to monetize the, the traffic at some point. Um, but it was it was so early, and and it was really to the point where I just can't keep doing this anymore. There there we no one was funding, and I was seriously running out of money. And a couple of times I met with John, and I just said we're going to have to, you know, unfortunately we're going to have to wind this down and at, at that point there was a northern california uh vc called cmg and they saw the potential uh, good for them and they put a term sheet and we raised uh two million bucks and at that point we could really then hire people and, 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 and we were always struggling to keep up with the demand for the service we were always struggling to add servers and uh, storage capacity, and I mean, the cloud was was decade, you know, decade and a half away. So we had to, you know, build everything ourselves. And so, uh, but then we and, and then we raised a number of successive rounds of financing uh, after that. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because you know people always say, you know, how much cheaper it is to to do a, a, a web startup nowadays. You know, even. From 15 years ago, when I did my first company, it's infinitely it's infinitely cheaper oh and easier. But so I'm I'm super curious about you know issues of uh, storage, servers, bandwidth, that sort of thing. Was were those insane costs that you were always struggling to to stay on top of as well? We were able to. It, it, it was it was a struggle on a number of fronts. It was um, finding the bandwidth capacity to handle the amount of traffic that, that we were generating, and we were consistently in the top 10, if not in the top 5, uh, in terms of sites of popularity, and people were uploading pictures and, and, and files like crazy and, 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 and creating sites, and we had a hard time finding ISPs that, that had the infrastructure to keep up, the bandwidth infrastructure to keep up with the demand, so that was that was a challenge, and, and and the ISPs initially just didn't didn't believe that we were generating so much traffic, and 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 but we did, and we would tax you know certain parts of their network. So there was that side of it. There was the financial side to make sure we had the capital for the servers, and then there was the technology side. We had to we had to build so much of this technology ourselves, and we had rooms and rooms and of racks and and and, 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 and servers and. And, and storage and disk drives and it just you you we would you know go up to the ISPs and we just had cage after cage after cage of of servers and we would constantly be adding uh, storage capacity and processing capability and it was a it was a monumental task and uh, we gave away we gave away websites for free and and it was it was the users obviously that created the content so that's there's a little bit of an aside which is. I was I, I was passionately and I was a passionate advocate of like, the validity of user-generated content. That the internet was all about giving people the opportunity to contribute and participate and feel like they had they were a part of the medium. That it was not a top-down programmed model like radio and television. That it was a bottoms-up user-generated content model. And all of this seems like super obvious. Now, but at, at at the time, that was you know that that was un, un, it was just unknown. And part of the challenge in raising capital was I remember you know so many meetings where people would say, why would someone want to look at a at a page created by someone else? Why why would they 
you know, want to look at someone's page about golf or about horticulture or about finance as, as opposed to, you know, a professional, you know, editorial. And, and I said, because it's, because that's what people want to do. They want to, they want to share their knowledge with other people and, and they want to connect with them. And so, but it was many, 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 many people remained unconvinced on that score. Um, but I was a passionate advocate of, of the, the integrity and the validity of user-generated content. And so we, and, and in order to, to, to acquire all this content, we gave away the sites for free. So that gets back to my other point, which is about performance and bandwidth and, and, and response time. And there was a scene in the, the, the movie The Social Network where uh, one of the founders from Facebook was, was at the uh, Facebook was going like crazy, and he was on a, on a mobile phone at the swimming pool, and there was uh, system problems, and it was down, and he just went nuts because people couldn't get to this, you know, get to their Facebook sites. And that was my that was my main, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week. That the, the site was fast, the site was easy to use, it was always available, and people would say, well, well, you know, you're giving this stuff away for free. Why do you care so much about? performance and response time. I said because, you know, it's because we're giving it away for free. It's the users are the ones that are creating the valuable content that's creating all the traffic. And unless it's easy and fast, they're not, they're going to go somewhere else. They're not going to create the content. So long way around by saying, saying uh, uh, just such an advocate for user-generated content and the fact that we had to have, you know, it, we had to have response times as if people were paying a lot of money, not not just because they weren't paying any money. And that leads to you know a lot of debates at the at the board level and with investors. Well, what if we just charge a dollar a month? You know, right. millions right. of users. What if we charge fifty cents? And I had to push back, you know, every step of the way. I said, no, that's it's not what this is about. This is about kind of an open source community where everybody can participate, no matter no matter what. Well, so because you, you don't want to go the subscription route, um, the business model you settle on uh, eventually is advertising, right? Advertising and e-commerce, so that and it, and it was it was it was prescient. It was the fact that these neighborhoods have targeted demographics that are that are attractive to advertisers. That's, that's what advertisers want is is a captive audience that they know you know shares an interest in their product. So. I mean, there, there were no ad servers. We had to build our own ad servers. There were no ad networks. We had to do all that. We had to, we had to, all that we had to do. And we had to build an ad force. There were no ad sales, you know, agencies. And we built an ad sales force and, and called on agencies in New York and uh, Los Angeles and landed, you know, quite a number of, of early accounts. And then e-commerce. And so we would, in, in, Again, we would do deals with sports companies, and we had subscription deals for uh, media, uh, and that was the promise of of what ended up being, you know, uh, the the business models for social networks today, uh, and and how they make money, and, and that's what we started way back when. I think it's um, there's a key point to stress here, which is uh, because you were you had the foresight to to to, to section these off into sections based on on interests and community and that made it easier to sell correct targeted direct advertising to, correct. based on interests and things like that yeah yeah that was that that was the whole key in it and it was successful i mean it was the very early 
version of what you know has become today a combination of social networks and and, and others. Yeah, well, uh, we'll we'll come back to that again b- uh, before we end. But so um, within a couple years, you're you've got tens of millions of users. I think right. I think by the time um, of maybe the IPO, you're approaching like 38 million users and. Uh, GeoCities is regularly in the in the top five, at least in terms of the most trafficked uh, websites by like 1997, 1998. Right. Um, would were you've already addressed this to a certain extent, but was there ever a concern that you would not be able to scale? You know, thirty eight million sounds like a large number until you realize that you know Facebook today has you know one point four billion. Um, was there a concern that that it, it would ever the growth would just spiral out of your control at some point? Well, I mean, the growth would you said scale would we not be able to handle the scale? Yes, yes. Uh, no, I was, I was, I'm no, I was never concerned about about that. I was, I was mostly concerned with with like companies, you know, at, at, at that stage making sure we had the right talent and we could keep up and find enough engineers uh, uh, to, to really help scale the company. That was my, and, and the leadership and the management and, and all that, that was my, that was my biggest concern. I, had, I, I didn't have any concern about scaling the, 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 biz, the business side. It was more the people side of it, building the company. Was, was that some of the motivation as well for the IPO? And, and the reason I asked that is, people have all sorts of different answers to this. Uh, some people are like, well, it, they reached a point where we just had to IPO because everyone else was. Other people, are, we, we had to we had to arm ourselves because everyone else was, was arming themselves with tons of money from IPOs and things like that. We, the, the, we had raised you know, quite a lot of financing leading up to the IPO. I think, I think Series D or E along the way. And an IPO... Is, is just another financing event. It, it's a it's a public financing event, but the the purpose of an IPO is to con- is to raise additional funds to fuel the growth of the company. Most most people look at an IPO as some big payday, uh, and and no, it's just you you raise first you you know I bootstrap the company myself, so that's a fundraising event, and then we had a series of of, of private rounds, and then. An IPO is just a public round, and the, the purpose, as I say, of an IPO is uh, to inject additional funds for for the future growth of the company. And then what happens during an IPO is the is the the stock becomes publicly traded. It's the public that is fueling. You know, the public has bought shares, and theoretically, as it should be, most of that money goes into the company for the for the future growth. And so, uh, once we once we had our IPO, I was you know, I was pleased because we had additional capital that we could then, you know, continue to invest and in, in build the business. Uh, we haven't mentioned um, competitors in your space yet. Um, there were there were sites like uh, Tripod and Angel Fire, and I think the Globe uh, later in, in its right. in its life started to do uh, personal homepages and things like that. Right. Um, just speak on on the competition in your space a little bit. Was it um, were were was it you know a feature race with with places like uh, Angel Fire and, and Tripod and things like that? It's a good way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I think that was part of it. It was it was. I was always concerned that we you know that we continue to achieve you know, critical mass and, and dominance in the space by adding additional features and making sure that the 
a lot of it had to do with performance and reliability that, that we all struggled with, with some of the same growth challenges and some, some companies struggled more than others and we had you know, we had an early first mover advantage. Uh I knew uh Bo Peabody from Tripod and really admired what he did and, and uh the Angel Fire people were doing were doing their thing and you know competition's a competition is a good thing. I think we had a we had a leg up because of first mover and we had a we had the contextual, we, we had the sense of, I, I think, I hate to use the word community because it gets overused, but we, we were always so focused on community and thematic coherence that I think that that gave us an advantage over, over the competitors. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Well, let's do then and talk about the the obvious idea that sites like these, sites like GeoCities and and other uh, community-based user-generated content sites were sort of laying the groundwork for what we now call um, social media and the, you know, social in general, do you feel like perhaps that, um, maybe you were a few years too early? And literally the main reason I asked that question is because, you know, in 1998, there aren't a lot of digital cameras yet. So, you know, by, by 2004, 2005, when Facebook comes along, people have, you know, digital cameras, they can post up pictures from parties and things like that. And, you're still in a dial-up era. You're still in a, a film camera era. Was it maybe a, it, the company? I'm, you know, GeoCities was wildly successful, but I'm wondering if maybe the idea wasn't quite mature yet in 1998. Well, the idea was an extension of of there, there, there's just a long continuum of kind of this, you know, user-generated content idea in in electronic communication that that there was a Pretty popular website, pretty popular site before it's called the Well, which was mm-hmm. uh, a, a really popular community-based site where people would gather. And then, and then there were bullet. As we talked earlier, there were bulletin boards before that. So I don't know if 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 too early is is the way to put it. More just that we were of we were of our time. We right, were, right. You know, we were uh, took advantage and and. We were, we were pioneers, and I, and, I, and I guess the way to put it, and maybe too early is, is appropriate, we, you know, we, we were pioneers in certain technology and certain ways that helped build a foundation for what was to come. And, and you know, I feel very fortunate. It, 
you know, I feel very fortunate to have been a part of it at the time that we were. Yeah, and I, I think that GeoCities has such an amazing – people have such affection for, for uh, GeoCities because so many people got – learned how to live – life online right. learn things like creating a digital identity through geocities through their their first geocities home pages and things like that there's this there's this really great uh uh instagram site called humans of new york have you heard of it yeah absolutely uh and for for, for those that that aren't aware it's a it's extremely popular uh instagram site and it also he's also done books and every day this fellow roams the streets of New York and takes people's pictures and then posts their story. And he does it in, in just an incredibly engaging way. Uh, we're talking about just a, a person. And, and, and so I was sitting outside the Apple store a couple of years ago at 59th and 5th. It was probably, it was one of those balmy New York. It was probably like 10:30 at night. And I was on my phone just sitting in the plaza uh, uh, at the at the GM building, and this fellow comes up to me, and and I'm just sitting there by myself, and he says, "Can I take a picture?" And I said, "Sure." And so he took my picture, and and then he said, "What's your?" I said, "Like, what's your proudest moment?" And I just like that took my picture and said, "What's your proudest moment?" And I guess I'd say, "I guess my proudest, you know, moment, at least from a personal achievement." business standpoint was having founded a website called GeoCities and uh, built it up and then went public in uh, 1998, you know, just down on, you know, down on NASDAQ. And so he, he then put the, he put that up on Humans in New York and, and he credits GeoCities as getting him, you know, as his start and his inspiration for ultimately what became Humans of New York because his first, uh, website. His first experience online was creating a website on GeoCities, and so, to your point, you know that was that's just tremendously gratifying uh, uh-huh. to to see to know that you know you help play a part in something that has now bloomed into you know hundreds of millions of, of flowers, so to speak. Well, and I I wonder um, again speaking to the the esteem and the the, the love that people have for GeoCities. Um, we we haven't mentioned that you know GeoCities gets bought by Yahoo. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But after Yahoo shuts GeoCities down, there's been this cr- tremendous grassroots uh, movement to preserve GeoCities. I I, I I assume you're aware of that. Yes, yes. Um, I can talk about that, or I can talk about the acquisition. Which which one? Well, let's let's do the acquisition first, then, since we'd be putting the <laughs> the cart before right. the horse. So um, how? How how does does Yahoo approach you and and how does how does that sort of deal start to come together? We had raised money from uh, uh, I had mentioned CMG early on and they were they then became uh, very big backers of Lycos, which was a very successful and popular search engine at the time. And we'd also raised money from SoftBank, which was a big backer of Yahoo. So we had uh, investors who were both very uh, uh, invested in in search engines at the time, uh, Yahoo and Lycos, and they were very popular in competing search engines way before Google. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the when it when it seemed time that it was an opportunity for us to go public, the, both those companies were very supportive, and we went public uh, in 
98, late 98, and I thought, well, once we're public, we are, you know, we're destined pretty much to remain an independent company for a while. And I had stepped down as CEO. I was founder and CEO, and I had stepped down about six to nine months before the IPO because, as we've talked about, my background was in software and tech, and mm-hmm. our business model was really media mm-hmm. ad-supported. And so we were very, very fortunate, and I did this more than willingly. I thought it was really important. Uh, we were very fortunate to attract uh, a very experienced senior publishing executive, uh, Tom Evans, who came from U.S. News and World Report. He was the publisher of that magazine. He had extensive background and credibility with ad agencies and publishers. So Tom took a big, great leap of faith, good for him, uh, came on board as CEO. And he actually took us through the roadshow and the public offering, and I remain chairman of of the company. And it's a it's a good example uh, of the importance of founder, you know, kind of recognizing and realizing when it's time to kind of take a different role. And there's other stories for other days about what happens when that doesn't happen. Right. Um, and so company went public in 98 we I, I had a sense we would remain independent and then in early 99 it was a very you know very frothy time and uh, both Lycos and Yahoo were interested in acquiring the company and Yahoo ultimately did acquire uh, the company and I was thrilled for any number of reasons I highly highly respected Yahoo and as I say I was up at a trade show in 94 when, when they were just getting started and setting up their own booth and it was a very, very lucrative, remunerative financial transaction, which I was very grateful for, for the investors and the employees. Uh, and what what then happened was a was a you know, very significant, serious attempt by Yahoo to leverage and take advantage of the traffic and the service. But what what happens is it, it, it's very common that there's other companies that then start up whose sole focus is this business model. So there was you know, MySpace that came along, there was Friendster, and when companies start up and they're laser focused in a certain area, they can they can outrun the giants, and that's that's really what happened. Is Yahoo had a very very diverse you know set of applications and business model, and unable to really invest enough to keep up with what innovative startups can do, and so ten years later, uh, GeoCities was shut down. And are you surprised that such a such an effort has been made to to preserve digital history? I mean, literally digital history that that existed on on GeoCities pages. I have to say, I, I am a little bit surprised. Um, I you know I've I've moved on after the sale of the company and have started my own uh, venture capital fund focusing on early stage tech startups, and I. I have been doing that for the last uh, 15 or so years and have been very uh, happy to stay active in the field. And I thought, you know, well, you know, GeoCities was uh, a certain period of my career, and now I'm focusing on other philanthropic and, and, and business endeavors. And uh, didn't really, I am kind of surprised, didn't really expect, and I, uh, I have been now, you know, supporting and close, supportive and close with uh a digital artist that, that has recreated uh, the archive and, and a, a project called Deleted Cities. And uh, that's been on display at art museums around the world. Uh, and that's just one of several 
initiatives to to you know mine this this fascinating digital archive. Um, uh, Baroda Ventures is is your uh, your capital firm, correct? Correct. And I I have to so that you, that's what you've been doing um, uh, subsequently. But I also have to really tip my hat to you of you know the the fifty odd people that we've interviewed so far. You really are one of the most uh, active and like really really committed philanthropists that that I've you know been lucky enough to speak to. Um, you know the, the list is is so long, but maybe just. Um, Tell me, tell me about the David Bonnet Foundation and 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 what the what the role is for for that foundation. The philanthropy in the foundation is is focused on the, the the mission is to improve society through social activism, and we have just a handful of key program areas that are that are significant, and most important to us, and they include uh, such things as. Uh, voter participation, voter registration initiatives, uh, socially responsible mass transit policy and mass transit initiatives, including bike lanes and bike sharing, uh, gun regulation, gun safety, anti-gun violence programs, uh, social service programs, particularly in, in the uh, lesbian and gay area focused on, on marriage equality and access to technology. And this is all pretty much, this is all an extension of a lot of the, the, the things we've been talking about, which is, which is giving people an opportunity to have a, you know, a fair shake in society. I mean, GeoCities was giving people an opportunity to contribute and participate on the Internet and, and, and uh, connect with others and, and, and feel empowered. And the, the, the foundation does the same thing in terms of helping you know, underserved and under underprivileged, and tackling some of these major, you know, initiatives that are so important in my mind to, uh, you know, a fair society. I have to ask because you you you're someone that's been so prominent in LGBT activism and and philanthropy. Um, you know, we talk all the time about how fast the tech world moves, but I'm wondering, have you been amazed at how quickly um, LGBT uh, has evolved in the, the, the rights and like, even, even from 10 years ago, um, like, I feel like I, I wouldn't have imagined that we'd be where the, the battle's not won yet, but I wouldn't imagine we would be where we are now, uh, even 10 years ago. I, I, I mean, I have to say that I, I kind of saw this, this coming and, my activism dates back to my, my days in graduate school at the University of Michigan in uh, 1978 to 1980 mm-hmm. when I worked in a, uh, a campus-sponsored uh, lesbian and gay uh, uh, student union. And it was a counseling center, and, and we did uh, seminars, et cetera. Um, and then in the, in, the, in the early 80s, when I was building my career in L.A. and in the software business, I was a co-founder of uh, the Los Angeles chapter of GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. Mm-hmm. And GLAD is focused on the positive and balanced portrayals of lesbians and gays in the media. And I would start to write letters in the, in the early 80s to producers and television networks and movie companies uh, that, were, that were 
portraying very negative stereotypes of, of lesbians and gay men, and that was pretty common at the time. And so I thought if we can win over the media, if we can promote the positive portrayal of lesbians and gays in the media, that, that, that we're going we're gonna to prevail. And, so, and, and that's going to, to help facilitate others in their own coming out process. So it was, I, you know, the most powerful thing that anybody can do is, is not give money. It's to, to stand up for who they are, particularly if you're a lesbian or gay. So coming out is the most basic thing, you know, the, the most powerful form of activism there is. In order for people to come out, they have to feel comfortable that there are other people like them out there. And to feel that there are other people like them out there, they have to see them on TV, in the movies. So it took a while, but if you, if you go from 1985 to 2015, that's 30 years. And so, you know, it, 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 once, once things really started to accelerate, you know, it, we're, we're almost there. There's a sense of maybe the snowball gathering, yeah. gathering mass. Yeah. Um, one other thing, uh, before we wrap up, um, I wondered, because I've spoken to a lot of people, um, I'm, I'm New York based. So when I talk to New York based tech people, I, we, we talk a lot about, Silicon Alley and, and New York as a tech scene. I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about Los Angeles as as a tech hub, uh, either back in the 90s or maybe more interestingly uh, today. Well, it was, you know, it was very sparse when, when I first started. I mean, Northern California and Silicon Valley was, was hot, you know, with, with, with all the new internet and tech startups, and in, in 1994 there was like nobody here, uh, and so that one of the reasons it made it hard to raise money. But I was always I always felt very very fortunate to be out of that frothy Silicon Valley environment and to be able to build uh, GeoCities, you know, kind of on my own down here in Southern California. And we were we helped, you know, we were part of the tech scene early on. And now just you use the term snowball. There's a tremendous amount of infrastructure here now, and uh, uh, big companies and small companies. There, there, there's a whole ecosystem that, that didn't exist, and so you have spinoffs now from, you know, Snapchat and spinoffs from GeoCities and others. So, the, the just in the last four or five years, this whole Los Angeles, Southern California, you know, tech environment has become huge. <clears throat> So final question, because, you know, it's it's 20 years on now from, from when uh, you started GeoCities. And now that it, it seems like, you know, social is the fabric that really connects, uh, you know, all of technology almost as much as electricity does. Um, looking back on it with the, you know, the lens of 20 years, um, this idea that you had even as a kid of like the fascination of, of people communicating with each other and, and being a communications geek, um, has, has the technology caught up to what you always imagined it would be, or are we not there yet? Or, or what, what do you think of, of the, of this idea of people, you know, connecting online where, where it is today? When I was a kid in Hinsdale, I had a little wooden block, uh, uh, that I, taped to my wrist and it was a Dick Tracy uh, like wrist radio and, mm -hmm. and and now with the Apple Watch you know science fiction truly comes true it's, it's just it's just amazing so I you know I, I 
I tremendously excited about the, the, the technology that's here now and the, and the future of technology, the future technology to come. But what I'm dismayed about is, if you, if you look at the 20-year span, what GeoCities was about was sharing knowledge about ideas and knowledge about topics. And we've gotten away from that to just sharing knowledge about ourselves and, and, and our faces. And where is the platform for people who really have I – mean, everybody has something to contribute. Everybody has knowledge in certain areas that they're passionate about. And I'm dismayed that they're, they're, we've, we've, we don't that – that didn't flourish the way you know, it was flourishing in the GeoCities era. And maybe you have an opinion about that, Brian. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, you're, so you're saying that maybe you're, you, you would want a platform for a more elevated discourse, possibly. Yeah, and elevated makes it makes it sound more sophisticated than it needs. It it's more of a platform for people who connect with others based upon what the it, you know their their love of certain subject matter. You mm -hmm. know, and, and Wikipedia is kind of that, but it's you know it, it doesn't have that mass you know mass appeal. So if someone is interested, you know, just just I mean, pick any any kind of subject. Someone's interested in golf. Right. Yeah, there are there are golf sites, but I'm just, you know, there's so much knowledge, collective knowledge, and and I'm not sure that we're crowd crowdfunding's a word that who would have thought of that 20 years ago. But mm -hmm. I'm not sure we're crowdfunding the human intellectual potential that's that's out there. Hmm. Yeah, I I can agree that perhaps. Uh the the discourse generally is is maybe a little selfish would that be the word right now right. Yeah. yeah self 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 centered yeah right 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 well i don't know i mean this is only the first 20 years of this sort of stuff that's right, right. so, so I'm, I'm and i'm ever an optimist you're right that's a good way to good way to end it yeah well uh david david bonnet thank you so much for remembering all that it's i really i really I was a huge uh, GeoCities user, so this is one of my... <laughs> I've been most excited for this interview, and I really think that GeoCities deserves credit for, for being one of the pioneers of of basically what all of technology is today. So thank you for thank you for talking about all that. Well, and thank you. Know, what, what you're doing is, is the embodiment and very consistent with what we've been talking about for the, for the last hour, because you're really... You're... you're conducting interviews like this and putting that experience and knowledge out into the world and that's that's extremely valuable so so thank you thank you very much well thank you this is an industry that doesn't do well with its history so we're trying to change that so terrific Brian. good to talk to you if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice there's plenty more great internet history where that came from and if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.